the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, World Vision Nepal's National Director, Liz Sato, shares her experience of the 2015 earthquakes. She discusses how World Vision has been working with communities, the government and other NGOs to restore services to the people of Nepal. Well, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Let's make a start. Thanks, everyone, for coming along to uh, today's event. And uh, thanks a lot to World Vision and Haley for um, suggesting that we, um, that we have this event. I, I guess, uh, I mean, to be honest, Nepal, Nepal is not a country we work on a lot, but um, this earthquake was obviously uh, such a, a disaster um, that uh, we thought it was uh, very good we should have an event um, in relation to it and find out uh, from an on-the-ground perspective what's happened there. So if you don't know me, my name's Stephen Howes and I direct the Development Policy Centre. Uh, we're hosting today's event along, of course, with uh, World Vision. And uh, as always, uh, we begin these events by acknowledging the first Australians on whose lands we meet and we pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Um, our main speaker today is Liz Sato. Liz is the country director for World Vision uh, for Nepal, and she's been there since July 2014. So I guess uh, you've had a pretty busy time, especially uh, over the last uh, few months. But um, actually, even before uh, coming to her current position, uh, she had a lot of experience uh, as working in the humanitarian sector uh, with World Vision, working on the World Vision Global Rapid Response Team. Uh, so... Uh, we're really looking forward to uh, hearing from you, uh, Liz. And we're also delighted that we have uh, Nikki Wright here. Nikki is uh, from the uh, DFAT humanitarian section and uh, also spent some time in, uh, in the country uh, after the disaster. So I think it'd be great to also hear from you. Um, and uh, that's it. That's it from me. So we've got an hour for this, and I'm sure uh, there'll be time for questions. So please... Uh, contribute uh, during the, the discussion section. Uh, but for now, please uh, join me in welcoming Liz to the podium. I'll start it in the middle of mine. Yeah. Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm very happy to be here. Um, you know, I, I spent many, most of my adult career working in humanitarian uh, disasters, uh, so, you know, I was in the Pakistan earthquake, I've been in Jerusalem, West Bank and Gaza, um, Haiti, Japan, tsunami, and the Pakistan floods, just to name a few. Um, and I have to say that the experience of actually living through a disaster, as opposed to going in with surge capacity to address a disaster, was completely different. Um, I was quite fearless in the past, I went into wars and conflicts and um, various types of crises, and I, I never really felt afraid. And I think what changed me was this experience in Nepal. Um, it was on a Saturday afternoon, um, thankfully, because that's the one day children aren't in school. Um, and we were having an INGO indoor football competition, Saturday afternoon fun. And uh, World Vision, I'm happy to say, was doing very well. <laughs> Um, and a friend and I, between games, went to get some coffee. And we were sitting in this, this um, coffee shop, and suddenly things started rattling. And I'd been in many earthquakes before, and they hadn't really bothered me. But with Nepal, there's a sense we're waiting. We're waiting for the big one. 
we'd been talking about preparedness. And, you know, I basically yelled, run. And we went out. We were thrown to the ground. We were crawling along the middle of the road, watching scooters and motorcycles tip over. Um, we crawled to a crossroad because there weren't uh, that many telephone poles or buildings nearby. And um, other people joined us. And we just sat there for what felt like forever while everything shook. Um, after that, I went back and we got the rest of the team. We found an open space and we sat in that space for most of the afternoon while there was just one large aftershock after another. I think for me, the difference in this experience um, was the expectation. You know, on a, on a humanitarian team, you go in knowing that you're going into a difficult place and it's not your home. You go in and then you leave. In Nepal, that, was, that had become my life. I'm not a Nepal expert. I've been there for one year um, as the country head for World Vision. I have a huge amount to learn still. But as far as I was concerned, Nepal is my home. And we were having a fun afternoon. And to have that suddenly ripped apart, like you can't trust the ground beneath, beneath your feet. And that experience was um, a shared experience with our futsal team. Um, but shared on a much broader level. And I think that was... Um, it was something completely new for me, something completely different. You know, I thought, yeah, I can handle this, but I couldn't. It shook us all, not, no pun intended, it literally shook us all. Um, over the coming days, we started, we started the response. Actually, that night, um, a couple of our staff started look, visiting hospitals to see what they needed, and then we started our response the next morning, and the surge teams arrived um, over the next couple of days. What struck me was... Again, going back to the difference, and I might harp on this a bit because this was my first development job, <laughs> ironically. It's the first time I thought, okay, I'm going to you know, move out of emergencies work and into development, and an earthquake followed. Um, so what struck me was, you know, internationals would come in, and I know from being on our humanitarian team that we had really strict sort of um, psychological care standards and protection standards, so after six weeks, most humanitarians rotate out for five days, take a break, and then come back in. Our Nepali staff didn't have that. Um, in the days after the earthquake, it was raining. It was unseasonably cold. We were all outside, sleeping under tarps. Some of us, our houses were badly cracked. In my case, the house wasn't cracked, but we just didn't know. So there was that lack of trust in the buildings that contributed um, and yet the staff kept coming back into work. And, you know, it's like, you don't have to do this. You know, we'll get other people in. But there was such a sense of commitment. You know, they, they over and over expressed that commitment. We want to help our country. And they saw coming into work and contributing to the earthquake response as part of their, their duty as Nepalis. And I found that incredibly moving and very powerful. Um, and, again, a very different experience from what I had done for so many years on a on a you know, rapid response team. <laughs> um, in terms of, one of the things I appreciated in this disaster compared to many of the others was the level of coordination within the humanitarian community. Um, I'm on the Association of International NGOs uh, on the steering committee and also sit on the humanitarian country team as a representative of INGOs. We'd also set up an informal working group of country directors before this to talk about contingency planning and preparedness. So when the disaster actually hit, there was a huge amount of trust between many of the key humanitarian actors on the ground, um, which was notably different from other disasters I've been in. 
So even with the UN, we were working quite closely. We were sharing information between ourselves. Um, I would say the big gap on the humanitarian country team in Nepal was the presence of the government. Um, in other countries I've been in, the government is always a member of that team. In Nepal, um, I'll just go back. Last year there were some floods, and the government basically said, you guys run this humanitarian country team. We'll be involved at some sector level, but we're not going to be involved here. So I think that sort of continued into the earthquake. Um, the army and the police did a fantastic job in the early days of the, the response. They were out there in the field um, helping with distributions. Um, so there was a huge amount of respect amongst the population for that. The central government was a different story, much more difficult for them, I think, because they hadn't experienced a large-scale disaster in the lifetime of those who were present. So it was a complete switch um, at, for the central government. At the district level, which is where most of the coordination was uh, happening, um, it was much more positive. There, were, there was some rotation of uh, the chief district officers, but overall, that's where, I mean, that's where the actual groundwork was happening, and those, that level of coordination was strong and um, overall pretty effective, I'd say. Um, I'm going to go into the, the PowerPoint and, and a short video, and it's... It's about the earthquake, but it's also about the work that World Vision has done since the earthquake. Okay. Out of the way. Okay, this is one of the uh, sort of the heritage sites of Nepal, and I think that was. Um, on an emotional level, quite devastating for people because these are sort of ancient monuments, very important part of Kathmandu, um, very popular with tourists as well. Um, unlike what you've seen in the media, not all of Kathmandu is, looks like this. It's actually only their patches of Kathmandu that were badly affected. You can drive from the airport all the way south, you know, across the city and not see any devastation the real disaster happened outside Kathmandu in the rural areas, hard-to-reach areas. Um, but I think, I mean, this did happen. This is an accurate picture, but it, it's not, um, you can't expand it out to the whole city. Uh, the, the government of Nepal um, very quickly asked for help in terms of search and rescue teams. Um, I think the response was a bit of, of an overkill, more search and rescue teams arrived than could be used at the time, um, but it was a very quick response. Um, and then, of course, as you know, on May the 12th, there was a second earthquake. Um, so the first earthquake, the buildings that it didn't take down, um, it, it damaged and cracked and weakened. And uh, many of the deaths from the second earthquake were as a result of the weakening of those buildings. Like I said, most of the damage was outside of the city. Um, Nepal is, uh, the terrain is incredibly difficult. It's stunningly beautiful, but I've been to our projects where people say, well, the next village, we, got, we have to walk for two days. Like the, the roads just aren't there, and you spend a lot of time walking when you get out to the rural areas. Um, and so to this day, there are villages that have not received aid, um, which is kind of shocking given that we're four months down the road. Um, geopolitical, geopolitical interests played a role in this, um, my understanding is that China didn't want air assets along that, the northern border, 
which meant that aid had to go by, by foot or by donkey to those villages. I was in the Pakistan earthquake many years ago, and we were able to helicopter goods to, to communities, and that was the norm. So for me, the difference between the Pakistan response and Nepal was quite striking. So these are scenes, this is um, actually in a part of the Kathmandu Valley. Um, people, I mean, a lot of houses were damaged, but then a lot of it was about fear. So people who didn't necessarily lose their homes were still sleeping outside uh, because they, they were afraid that their homes weren't safe. Again, um, I think what struck me is, you know, I was talking to our staff and they were saying things like, you know, they've had elderly parents or sick parents um, young children, and they're sleeping in these conditions and still resilient enough to show up and try to contribute. And I, I found that across the earthquake. I mean, Nepalis are incredibly resilient people. Um, the need is still there, though. You know, <laughs> they, they're managing and they're doing a fantastic job, but it doesn't um, reduce the level of need that's still present. Um, along with uh, three other INGOs and uh, UNICEF and uh, some apex bodies of the government, like the Central Child Welfare Board, uh, we, we ran a massive uh, children's consultation. I think it's the largest done after a, a large-scale disaster. Um, and we got um, ideas from children about what they were thinking, how they were feeling, how aid had impacted them. Um, so the next few slides are basically taken from that, um, that report. Okay, now I'll talk a little about uh, World Vision's response. The target appeal was for $50 million. Uh, we haven't re reached that target yet, but um, you know, it's sort of an ongoing process. We're assuming two years. I suspect it's going to be much longer. The government of Nepal has estimated five to eight years for, for the rehabilitation and recovery. Just to put, put this in perspective, um, in a post-disaster needs assessment, the government of Nepal has estimated $7 billion in damage and losses. That's about a third of the economy. So, you know, within, between the two earthquakes, it's set the country back. Nepal um, had planned to leave its LDC status by 2022, um, and now that, that target is, is completely obliterated. There is no target at the moment. So it had a huge impact. Nepal was a poor country before, and now it's, it's made much poorer. I think one of the estimates I saw in the PDNA was that a million people were thrown into short-term poverty. Um, the population of Nepal is somewhere between 28 and 30 million, depending on whose statistics you're looking at. So that's a, lot of, that's a huge addition in terms of um, short-term poverty. Okay, um, like most organizations after a humanitarian disaster, shelter, well, particularly earthquakes, shelter and non-food items are always critical. Uh, water sanitation and hygiene is always important. Um, food, obviously, although in this disaster that wasn't a primary need. 
uh, cash is always important, and then health, health and nutrition, child protection, and education. The earthquake wiped out, um, actually I'll come to the education piece in a moment. This is a distribution line in Sindhu Palchok, um, one of the badly affected areas. One of the issues we've struggled with, along with other organizations who are participating in, in the response, is the whole um, issue of social inclusion. Um, so, so, for example, you know, here we have this line. Some of these people had walked for six hours to get to this point. The idea that we'd agreed on as uh, humanitarian responders was to go to the last possible point after the road that you could manage to take all your stuff, and then people would come down to meet you at that hub. Well, if you have disabilities and you don't have members of your family who can walk this distance, you're, you're excluded. Um, people from lower castes were excluded. Uh, people who were, you know, sort of didn't even hear the news about the distribution were excluded. There are many different points of exclusion. And I know for most INGOs and others who were responding, the challenge was the pressure to get things out as quickly as possible um, versus, the, versus the need to verify lists, get out, make sure information is going to the right people. Um, so I think everyone was concerned about this, but it did keep coming up as an issue in the humanitarian country team. There were real concerns that just by the nature of, of the terrain, the messaging, all sorts of things, that people were being excluded. This is just a nice picture of our warehouse. <laughs> Not sure why it's in there, but it's a very clean-looking warehouse. <clears throat> So like I said, food wasn't a major issue for most people, but um, we used uh, food programming. Um, we actually distributed cash a lot more than food. Um, in fact, we've just finished a, a cash distributions in, a, in Sinduli, which is one of the more eastern districts, um, to 13,000 households. And that was repeatedly a number one uh, request from people. They wanted cash. So, you know... You definitely need to know if their market's functioning, but I think people wanted to just feel that they could control what they were doing. They wanted to be able to buy the supplies. They wanted to fix their houses and, of course, get their, get, meet their other household needs. Um, World Vision uses... This doesn't look like it's this one, but in most of our distributions, we use um, mobile technology, which has you know, a photograph and a barcode. And the idea is that with that, you can actually track... Um, goods better. You can you can make sure you're including people who may have different vulnerabil vulnerabilities and are excluded. Um, so that was fairly successful in Nepal. Um, like I said, shelter was a primary need. This was mostly tarps, rope, <coughs> mosquito nets, blankets, things like that. Um, in the places I went to, sort of very informal assessments, people loved the mosquito nets. They were, they were more popular than just about any other item. One of the things that um, across all the emergencies I've been in um, that comes out is that children feel really distressed, not just by the disaster, but by the disruption to their routines. A lot of children are separated from their friends, and they miss that. Um, so World Vision um, sets up child-friendly spaces. Um, and they're not to replace schools, but they're places where children can play and learn. Um, so I think we, we worked with over 3,000 children in the first couple of months in these child-friendly spaces. One of the positive knock-on effects is that parents said they really appreciated them because, 
you know, the kids were, they knew the children were safe for a few hours and they could get on with doing whatever they needed to do to start pulling their lives back together. Um, on a personal note, I have to say, you know, in a response, it can be quite overwhelming. Um, and you see, you know, it's a distressing time. So my visit to the child-friendly space was like a, a boost because um, we had the World Vision president visiting with his entourage and a photographer, and this guy was lying on the ground like trying to take pictures of him. And these little boys just ran across the tent and jumped on the photographer. <laughs> and you knew that they were back to kind of being normal. I mean, the volunteers reported that many of the children would just sit in a corner and cry in the beginning. Um, they were scared to come inside because they thought was, things were going to fall. They would flinch at every noise. So to see that sort of restoration of normalcy to some degree was, was fantastic. Um, like I said, child-friendly spaces don't replace education. They don't replace schools. They're just a way to start a routine back. Um, so in this disaster, I was quite happy. The, the government of Nepal really pushed getting temporary learning centers back to replace schools. Um, so we had tents. We had different types of bamboo structures. Um, and children could resume their, their schedule. Um, and then, of course, water, sanitation, and hygiene is a critical part of any disasters. So, um, you know, provision of public toilets, especially where there are IDP um, settlements, um, teaching, hand washing, things like that becomes much more important when people are crowded together. Um, the, the response was pretty good, but there's a huge amount of work ahead for Nepal. Uh, like I said, it was a country that lost a massive chunk of its you know, economy. Um, and rebuilding and building back better um, is, is critical and is going to take a long time. Some of the, the complexities are, obviously, there's, the monsoon is on right now. Um, and the earthquake shook up the land a lot, so there are massive cracks in, in many of the places where we're working. And when there's heavy rainfall, that, that adds to landslides. So... You know, at least once a week you'll read about another big landslide blocking off the roads. And if you take the lack of air assets into account, that becomes a, a much more difficult situation. Um, the terrain, as I've mentioned, is a challenge. And the political landscape. Nepal is going through a lot of political change right now. Um, when I left, we had operating areas in the west that had been under curfew for two weeks. Um, there, a new constitution is on, just on the cusp of being finalized. And, um, you know, people are, are using, they're protesting different aspects of, of the Constitution. Um, so around the country, there are curfews and protests going on, well, last week at least. And um, this adds to the complexity of the environment. Um, this is, again, going back to the children's consultation. Children were talking about hopes for the future. Um, so this little girl is hoping for a safe school. And I think what um, I, I really appreciated is how aware the kids are. Like, they know what they want. They know what they want in terms of safety. Um, a lot of kids we talk to talk about the environment and the importance of the environment. Um, so we've, we're trying to find ways to build in what children are saying into our response. Okay, I'm going to show a short video, and then I'll end, and maybe... <coughs> Nikki, do you want to? Okay.
Good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you for having me here this afternoon. My name is Nikki Wright. I'm from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I'm in the Humanitarian Division. I've been in the division for a little under five months, and two of which I spent in Nepal. I arrived there on the 6th of June, and then the following two months was working there. We supported World Vision through our Humanitarian Partnerships Agreement Essentially, this is an agreement that we have in place when a natural disaster strikes. We are able to quickly activate and work with our international um, NGO partners and have activities on the ground very quickly. We had our first conference call with our partners on the 14th of May when they were actually implementing programming, and anybody that's worked with government before knows that that's a very speedy response. Um, I'm happy to answer questions here today, um, but just, just noting that it'll be more from my personal experience whilst I was in Nepal, um, as opposed to government policy, etc. So, thank you. Um, yeah, I don't know if you want to... Um, perhaps, yeah, or just be on the ready. <laughs> So thanks to both Liz and uh, Nikki also for introducing yourself um, and uh, being prepared to take questions. So, um, yeah, I think that was a very moving um, presentation and a little video. But uh, I invite uh, your questions or comments on uh, any aspect 
of the uh, earthquake in response. Yeah. Thanks, Liz, for the presentation. It was good. Uh, I'm Nicholas Munn. I'm with the company called John Staff Project, and we're currently constructing the new Sheraton Hotel in Nepal. I'm sure if you're familiar with the site. Um, was just, I was just interested to see your perspective on what's happening there because we've um, a lot of our thinking is not only in that commercial construction space, but we also do post disaster reconstruction work in, in Queensland for quite some time back to Cyclone Yasi. Um, running that program, um, and we always see the same situation where, because the, the, the commercial aspects of getting the economy going again, how important that is, um, that doesn't kickstart quickly after the recovery phase. It seems to slide down the hill, and it's very hard to pull back up the other side. And I just wanted to share with you, from our point of view, the world's been incredibly generous giving stuff to Nepal, um, but it's all blocked up there. Their customs and quarantine and immigration process, and we've actually need equipment to come through that to kickstart the project, to keep it going, to keep people employed, so that money starts trickling out through the community. So it's interesting that you've got the humanitarian need, but then also the economic need of getting that economy going. And your cash payments, I think, is a great idea because a lot of people think, oh, it's just open to corruption and abuse, but the fact is to get that money flowing, gets people back working, gets kids back to school, if their needs are they have. That's um, good, thank you. Have you got any observations? Yeah. My point of view? Do you, why don't you come up here, Liz, and I'll just I'll send over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I'm trying to think what else I can say. I, I mean, Nepal, like I said, for the, for the country, this was a, a massive event. I mean, there are other countries that have disasters on a regular basis. The, Pakistan has earthquakes and floods on a regular basis. And I... I just see the difference in the ability to respond. Um, yeah, the, the customs issue was a huge, hugely controversial issue because normally customs uh, is, is left off the table for, for 90 days after a disaster from most governments. Um, and I was actually chatting with somebody in, in the government and they're like, well, we don't even know that. You know, like Nepal is a development country. They, don't, they have emergencies on a regular basis, but they're small. Um, so, yeah, I, I can imagine that's still an issue. Um, as far as getting the economy going, um, I've heard appeals for tourists to start coming back to Nepal. Um, but um, I was speaking with um, this kind of brilliant man who used to be with the World Bank, who's just joined the Nepal Planning Commission. And we had some really interesting conversations. And he said tourism is so important for the PR but actually, it's only 2% of the economy. It should be a much higher percentage. So tourism is going to help the economy, but it's more about look at Nepal. You know, it's about the PR aspect of tourism, because tourists who go there love it, and they come back with positive messages about Nepal. Um, yeah, look, I don't know about the re reconstruction. I'm, I know the government at the time of the earthquake did not have any guidelines on demolition. Like, it just wasn't part of the the thinking or there were no policies or no guidelines. So I think it's this massive learning curve right now on, on how, how this government is going to work with people like yourselves, um, you know, the private sector, the humanitarian sector, and the development sector to, to move ahead. And of course, there are many governments involved. Nepal is sandwiched between China and India, you know, and they're, they're not the best of friends. And so you have <laughs> this small country sandwiched between two Asian giants who, who want to have influence in Nepal. 
Um, and I think sometimes in, in our sort of development and humanitarian world, we forget that they're much bigger players. Um, you know, it's, there, there's a whole bunch of geopolitics going on that we don't even feature in that. Um, I, I don't know if that, that's yeah, a useful comment. Yeah, this is good to know that the thinking aligns with what you're saying. I think sometimes with reconstruction, sorry, just apologies, just one question. Um, with reconstruction, in your opinion, do you think that the, the jump between the relief recovery then to reconstruction is too great? And we, we think of reconstruction as doing these big, expensive things when reconstruction is actually small micro reconstruction projects that ultimately lead to the bigger projects. I don't see it as a big jump. I think, it, in fact, it, quite often there's relief going on at the same time as micro-level reconstruction. Um, and I think it's, it's really important to keep pushing. I mean, my concern was that people didn't get relief that they needed. Um, we're in the monsoon now. The monsoon's going to end and then winter's coming. And a lot of the people who didn't get relief are in higher places, so it's much colder. So that's actually a real concern for me. But I think the push towards reconstruction at the same time is, is valid and important. Okay, yeah, we've got a few questions at the back. Thank you. My name is Stuart Collins. My question comes from a background in uh, international disaster response in Indonesia. Yeah. I know precious little about Nepal, so thank you. Um, picking up the geopolitics line, it's always interesting, isn't it? So when the search and rescue teams arrived, which countries were first to arrive? Was China... Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think, well, India, the Indian army was there really quickly. They, India might have been the first, but China was pretty close. Um, I don't, to be honest, I don't remember all the countries that came. I know there were issues with one country. I can't remember who it was because they, they were just looking for live people who were alive. And when they'd come to a body, they would ignore it. And it caused, there was this huge reaction to that. It's like, you have to rescue our bodies as well, otherwise leave the country. And that goes against sort of search and rescue mentality, which is we have a limited time, and we have to use that time to bring out those who are alive. Um, but I actually don't know which countries were the, the first on the ground. And who is still there? Who are the big players now, four months in? Um, well, I think India and China are still big players. Um, the, the big INGOs, you know, World Vision, Save the Children, CARE, Oxfam, they're all present. Um, like I said, I'm on the steering committee of the uh, Association of International NGOs. There are 117 registered before the earthquake. Now we're up to 125. Those are just the registered ones. A hundred new NGOs showed up right after the earthquake, INGOs. Now Nepal has 40,000 local NGOs. Um, so if you think about the size of the country, uh, I, I don't know what it works out to per person, but it's, it's a pretty phenomenal ratio. Um, thank you for sharing your perspective. It's a really invaluable lesson for us. And um, I'm Emily Han from AEU, and I was wondering, from your experience um, at the ground in Nepal, have you noticed any um, aspect that we should, in fact, spend money and effort on that has been neglected? That's a good question. Um, I wish we had spent more on preparedness, and actually that's the message I'm taking forward is... Nepal is due for another earthquake. I mean, it's on a, a number of fault lines. And actually, BBC on, on August the 7th ran an article about how the fault lines have shifted. We can expect a megaquake in the west, western part of Nepal. 
So, you know, I've been thinking organizationally, how prepared are we? We've got operations in the West. Um, one of the big issues was you couldn't, right after the earthquake, we couldn't get any trucks because the trucks were there, but the drivers had gone home to their villages. Um, Nepal quickly ran out of, I mean, this is normal for any country, you run out of like the camping supplies, right? Um, so my question for the future is how prepared are we? Um, and that's, you know, that's an ongoing question. And preparedness is difficult to fund. You know, people give emotionally to a response. But preparedness, you know, it may or may not happen. Is it a good investment? Um, years ago, um, when I was in the GRRT, this global rapid response team, I think we, there was a figure, it was like for every dollar spent on preparedness, you save between 8 and 10 in a disaster. So it's, it's a good investment. It just doesn't have the emotional draw that a response has. In terms of the actual response, um, I kind of wish that... I wish maybe governments had done a bit of negotiating with the government of Nepal. Um, I'll, I'll give you my very specific example. The U.S. had a, an, an agreement before the, the earthquake with the government of Nepal that all relief items would be tax-free for the, free, for the U.S. So U.S. Uh, AID partners received tax-free items. When... On June the 22nd, the taxation issue really hit the fan and, and it's like, okay, everybody's going to pay customs and VAT. A lot of smaller INGOs who, for example, were getting funding from ECHO, from the, the European Commission, said, we're not going to be able to do any more distributions. We can't afford to bring items in through the country. Um, so for me, one of the, you know, I, I'm kind of interested in the government levels. Like, what, how are governments working with each other to make sure a humanitarian disaster actually takes the humanitarian imperative into account and allows for um, a rapid response. So it's more like pre-positioning of relationships and agreements um, that I think would be really important. And, and to me, now is the time to start doing that in Nepal. Thank you. Sure. Uh, I have two. Uh, my name is Mandi Prabhupada. I'm a Nepal student uh, with the School of Anthropology at the University. Yeah. Um, I have two questions. First question is... Um, how much money was, was given to families? You said that cash payment wasn't made. I was wondering how much money that was. And the second is, you said that there, there's a number of INGOs and angels working in Nepal. So when you coordinated, um, whether you went to one place jointly or whether you separated these places, I'm yeah. saying, you know, so that there's an there's a error of, of, of communication is to use to work. Yeah. So for your first question, I know for one of our grants, which was a WFP grant, each family got $80. The government was giving uh, was 150,000 rupees for damaged houses. That's about $150. Um, so all the cash uh, distributions, we first had to check with the government. Initially, the government had said, please don't give unrestricted cash. Um, they wanted people to wait until the government had distributed um, so it's a timing issue. But that $80 that we distributed was connected with the donor and the donor's limitations. Um, and that's the one program I know, know about. I think the others we did were pilots, and I'm not sure what the amounts were for that. Um, for your second question, no, the coordination was done by the chief district officer. So the chief district officer would... Initially, they said, we want you to do all the sectors. So you take one VDC, or Village Development Committee, and you take this one area, and you do everything. 
Now, again, many NGOs specialize in, in one sector, so that didn't work. So they started changing it, but you had to always go through the chief district officer. So the efficiency of the response in each district was highly dependent on the quality of that person, um, not just the CDO, but also there's a DDRC, which is a District Disaster Response uh, Committee, which is made up of different political parties and, and other key players, um, members of the government. So it's coordination with those two district bodies. Um, and basically, in Nepal, you can't, well, you, you know this, I'm sure, but you can't do work at a district level without going through those government bodies, even in development. You have to work through local NGOs, and you have to work with the, with the district office. So the coordination is not done at the NGO level. It's done at the district government level. Thank you. I'm John Ayers. I used to work in the Australian Treasury. You uh, answered uh, the uh, previous question uh, about coordination. So can I ask about uh, earthquake-resistant building? Um, what's involved in that? Um, does it, for example, mean uh, more external foreign inputs are needed? Has it meant that uh, Nepalese uh, working in India or other countries uh, have come back to help people? Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, before the earthquake, we retrofitted one school and two health posts, sort of as an experiment. Um, I think it cost something like $25,000 per, per structure. And I'm not an engineer, but my understanding is basically you wrap a building in rebar. So, I'm sorry if that's a really crude definition. But that's how I understand it, and the, the, the bars hold it together. Um, and that's a significant cost when you're not expecting an earthquake right, to just do this. What I loved is we went to these buildings, and they were standing without a single crack in them. They, the community recognized they were safe, and people had moved in. People who were outside moved in because they said, yeah, even when the earth shakes, we know this building won't fall. Um, so we've adopted a safe schools um, initiative in World Vision, and we want to do that in all of our operating areas, not just the earthquake ones. Um, as far as the second question, I mean, the second part of your question, um, Nepal exports its young men, basically. Um, I think last time I checked, it was 1,700 young men were leaving the country every day through the airports to go to the, to, mostly to the Middle East, but also Malaysia and other countries. Um, and they work there and send the remittances, remittances back. So the economy is like 25 to 30 percent dependent on remittances. After the earthquake, many of those young men came back to check on their families and so on. But, you know, I've talked to families, and they had these horrible decisions to make. The house is destroyed. The wife and the kids need help. But the dad kind of needs to go back to earn money to help them. Um, and, you know, they were grappling with really, really difficult decisions like that. Um, I think a lot of people went back. I know at one point the government was appealing, saying, um, could you stay and help rebuild your country? And I think it's been a mixed reaction. There are plenty of, of youth who've decided to stay in Nepal. I've spoken with some of them, and they, they're like, no, we want to help rebuild our country. But there are others who are like, I need to work and earn money for my family. So it's been a bit of a mix. I, I don't have any statistics on it. Um, but yeah, very mixed bag. As far as the um, needing a lot of internationals or foreigners to come in... I don't know. I mean, there's some really good um, organizations in Nepal that deal very specifically with earthquake technology. 
but they're, they're completely overwhelmed right now. So I think for now, the need may be higher than the local supply. Um, in the future, I think, you know, Nepal is producing engineers and so on, but I think they're, they're stretched. There aren't enough right now. Well, then you should come up here. <laughs> yeah. I think the recent data shows that remittances has been increasing. But, yeah. Even since the earthquake? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Insurance. Thank you. Cool. And then, thank you. My name is Paul Meyer. I'm, I'm on the board of an of a Australian church-based aid agency, and we responded, of course, to the, to the disaster. And just amazing how much money small organizations here can raise. We work with a partner there, the World Federation, and um, the reports we got were that, as on board, was that there was this, and I saw it in the news here as well, blockages, you know, for quite a while after the in the aftershock blockages mainly at Kathmandu Airport. Mm. Aid agencies were needing, were, were trying to find ways to get supplies through by land from India. Do you know if the if this situation has continued or is that cleared up? No, it's it's really cleared up. In the beginning, I think the airport had a, I don't remember what the tonnage was, but the airport could only hold a certain tonnage. And it was, it was constant flights and the tonnage was exceeding what the airport could handle. Um, so that was a big issue. And then for a lot of INGOs, the problem was like we had to wait for stuff coming out of warehouses in Dubai because the Indian Army had the airspace and then they sort of ranked it. So, for example, UN agencies got priority and we kept getting bumped back. Um, so it's sort of where you were on the list. <laughs> um, but it did create significant delays. And we did end up looking at um, bringing things in from India. And did World Vision have prepositions? We had some, yeah, we had some prepositioned around, mostly in the east and um, on the Terai, like near the Indian border. So we used those, but they finished very quickly. I mean, we so didn't preposition enough. Yeah, yeah. And prepositioning is also, I mean, it's really important, but it needs maintenance because things wear out, you need to rotate. So it, it, it's costly. Yeah. Thank you. Anything you'd like to comment on? It's many. Um, perhaps just to quickly touch on the retrofitting. Somebody asked a question about uh, retrofitting of schools to have an earthquake resistant. Yes, um, an example of that we, were fund, we funded 169 schools to be retrofitted prior to the earthquake, and all of which survived the earthquake. So it's certainly an area that. Um, we are pursuing, and obviously moving forward, we will be building more schools in the fall, and they will have the same earthquake-resistant um, technology implemented in those. And insofar as a question on technical expertise, um, we're also providing, we're supporting um, the institutions that are in place and providing engineers that will help with um, the design. This, the government of Nepal will be developing certain designs for schools, and they will be providing assistance in the development of that as well. So it's just one thing on the earthquake resistant. Can I just add to that? We're along with the schools. I think 
Um, it's really important to have the other side, which is awareness building amongst children and, and communities and teachers about what are safe practices. So there's this horrifying story that many, many of you might know about. A little boy was actually outside in the earthquake, and he ran in because he had been told to go under a table when there's an earthquake. And he ran under the table and was crushed. And that story sort of made its way all around Nepal because it was like the, you know, nobody taught him about the context you know, if you're outside, that's actually safer. Um, so I think along with the, the importance of retrofitting, it's also teaching people, well, in this, in this particular context, what is the safest way to, for you to behave? And it might be different in different communities. Um, so that piece, as well as advocating with the government to, be, um, to have tighter implementation and enforcement of building codes. Because Nepal actually has pretty good building codes, but they're not implemented or enforced much of the time. So that, that was the concern with this earthquake. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I was uh, I was there at that time, and um, so sort of summary that I presented is a very good reflection of what I have on the film. <clears throat> so there is a kind of painful situation, and uh, and thank you for your good work at that time as an analyst. For both of you, um, I would be interested to know, do you have any plan to contribute to the Build Back Better, whatever the construction is? And um, is there any policy that the Australian government has worked out um, in making the contribution? And uh, similarly, um, what sort of strategy that World Vision would be putting in place? Okay. Do you want to start? Or? Yeah. Um, I mean, disaster risk reduction and build back better essentially go hand in hand, and it's something that we, the government spent approximately $100 million on annually. And in the call um, last financial year, it was approximately 5 to $7 million that we spent on disaster risk reduction. Now, building back better is something that the government of Nepal is very much advocating for. And we strongly support in all of our agreements with all of our partners. Everything that we do is focused on building back better. We don't do a lot of infrastructure development specifically. The main area that we are focused on in the poor is the schools, which I mentioned. And all of those will most certainly be built with the, the highest level of technology, earthquake technology resistance that, that we can in that, in that setting. Um, does that cover? Yeah, it does. Um, uh, so there is a, a problem at the moment that uh, some of the villages have to be moved to a different location. And uh, there's a uh, uh, snow, just a technical thing, there are causal issues, all kinds of things. They all need to be solved. And uh, financial issues, not just that, there are a lot of other things. So uh, I was just interested to. Uh, See whether there is any thinking going on on the Australian government side, and is there any policy being? And this is one country, uh, it's this is one issue for Australia. But just interested whether there is anything going on, and do you have any plans in place to respond to this situation? Uh, it may not be anything that, that's that's better. Um, I think it's Nepal is definitely a definitely a priority. We've spent twenty eight million dollars 
have in response to the earthquake. That is, insofar as the relocation of communities, that's not something that we're involved in, so I can't I can say what we've advocated for the resettlement. Um, as a humanitarian country team, we actually sent um, sort of an appeal to the government to consider key um, sort of standards and key considerations for the resettlement program, like time frame, clear communication, it should be last resort, communities need to be very involved um, and participating in the process. You know, all, there's a whole list of key recommendations that we gave to the government. I'm not sure where... I know some communities were resettled, but it's been much smaller than originally predicted. Um, in terms of World Vision's um, participation in the reconstruction and Build Back Better, like I mentioned, the Safe Schools Initiative, it's a long-term initiative, and it goes way beyond the, just the earthquake districts. So basically anywhere where we're working, we want to have retrofitted schools and children who are aware and so on. Um, and then Health Posts is another area for us. Um, and then shelter, like uh, working with the, there's a Nepal uh, earthquake technology, hang on, Nepal Society for Earthquake Technology, NSET. And it's a very active um, group of engineers and um, people who study earthquakes. And they've done some really great things in creating manuals and how to build using local materials and making it more earthquake resistant than perhaps traditional ways, but always using local materials. Um, so there are groups like that around that we want to work with in, in training communities on one or two things they can do differently in building, building back more safely. Um, so that's going to be part of it. As far as our, I don't know if you're referring to the Reconstruction Authority in that question, but I'm not sure what our relationship is going to be with that authority or how funding will be managed by that authority. And I think that's kind of a, a big question mark right now. I met Shesh Ghali, who's a very influential Nepali living here in Australia. I met him yesterday. He's now the special envoy of the government of Nepal. And he'll be... Sorry? Oh, that's his hotel? Well, he was at a similar presentation yesterday. We were chatting. And, you know, he's really interested in knowing what the obstacles are to, to the relief effort, to reconstruction. Um, and I, I guess the head of the Reconstruction Authority is, is a friend of his. So he's like, you know, I think it's going to be efficient. We're going to work out some of these obstacles. So fingers crossed. Just on the transfer, as a point of view. Sure, uh, one more. Yeah. Yeah. But has anyone lost your resonance? <coughs> yeah, we're on the second round. Do we are running out of time, so yeah. Sorry to uh, for rational questions. Oh. Thanks very much, Liz. My name is Liz Morris. I work for a consulting firm um, with an interest in um, some but I was interested in your point about social inclusion and the issues about around social inclusion during the kind of recovery phase and, and the response phase. How do you think that is going to kind of play out during the rebuild? How will you be able to include um, vulnerable populations in your kind of in your projects? Yeah. So part of it is doing your homework. You know, it's very easy to go and you go around the areas near the road and. You know, more vulnerable populations live in more isolated parts of that community. So that's one of it. But um, we're doing things like focusing on um, women and youth for business training. I mean, youth for World Vision as a child-focused organization, youth are hugely important. And given that just under 50% of Nepal is under the age of 18, it's a very, very young country. Um, that whole um, Australian government's economic development focus is really important. But as an NGO, we can't create jobs, so 
we're working on how to how do we work with youth to make them help them be better prepared. Um, as far as the, I mean, we've got accountability teams who go out and check. They we get lists from the government for beneficiaries. Then we have accountability teams going out to verify the list to make sure they include people um, who are excluded. We don't have it right yet. We, we just have to work get the system better because we'll get data but it doesn't always affect our operations I mean to be perfectly honest so one of the conversations we've had um, over the past weeks is how do we make sure that this data we're collecting from our accountability and feedback mechanisms actually changes the way we're doing our operations um, it's a work in progress I think most of the organizations in Nepal struggle with this um, we haven't done this yet. I'm interested in doing a Jesse um, audit of our programs, which is gender equality and social inclusion. And there are a number of very high-powered Jesse auditors who are Nepali, and they, they can check your programs for you, and they've got a you know, set key list of questions. Are you helping neutral or harming different groups? Uh, we haven't done that yet. It's, it's on my to-do list. <laughs> and the response manager who's there now is trying to hire a Jesse um, Jesse Auditor, to help us think through the areas where we might have, um, you know, blind spots. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it does. I mean, it's just a very complex issue that we've kind of been talking to people about. Yeah. Particularly with um, caste discrimination and yes. in terms of the recovery and yes. response efforts. Yeah. 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 All right, I'll make this the last question the session. Sorry, Stuart. Others can speak. Uh, I'm and I'm from Nepal, and I have seen that uh, there, are, there are very many agencies working before the earthquake also for the preparedness for like those programs. And uh, how do you think, or uh, what do you think those preparedness really work during the disaster? Or, yeah. um, it helped to a degree. Um, you know, there were those floods last October, I think, um, in Banke. And I was talking to a large agency who, who works in Nepal, and they said we actually used some of our prepositioned goods for those floods and didn't replenish in time. Um, I think the country directors group that we set up really helped in the coordination, but in terms of the physical preparedness, no. Um, ironically, just before the earthquake, Ocha was running a big preparedness workshop <laughs> looking at 16 districts that are vulnerable to floods. And we were talking about how are we going to work the systems. Because, you know, the biggest difference between development and emergencies that I can see is in an emergency, you move to a um, very clear chain of command. Like decision rights is actually the biggest issue in, a, in an emergency. And in Nepal, even though we, in there were places where we did have prepositioned goods, because there was disagreement about who should make a decision in this area or this area, it stopped the response. And I think... So the message I had in that workshop over and over is we need to talk to the stakeholders in those districts and have them decide who's making the decisions. Is it going to be the CDO? Is it DDRC? Is it central government? Is it the Red Cross, which is a hugely important body in Nepal? Um, and I think the preparedness to me is not so much about things. It's about the relationships, the agreements, the decision rights. And I think in Nepal, that was the hard part. We hadn't prepared those adequately. Yeah? Okay, I think that's a really uh, interesting note to end on. But let me, did you want to add anything else? Yeah. All right, well, we are out of time, everyone. I'm sure you can continue the conversation afterwards with our guests. But uh, many thanks uh, to World Vision, to Liz, Hayley, and also to Nikki for coming on and contributing.
Thanks, everyone. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.